One guest, 10 songs, 10 reasons. Music was my first love on Radio Glamorgan. My guest on this edition of Music Was My First Love will be known to regular Radio Glamorgan listeners as the voice of the Word on Health series. He's a former West End actor appearing alongside the likes of Kenneth Branagh, Rupert Everett and Daniel Day-Lewis. In 1997, he moved into radio production and healthcare promotion, launching the Word on Health report in the year 2000. I'm talking about Paul Pennington and we'll hear from Paul after his first choice, which is from the great Jackie Wilson, and your love keeps lifting me higher and higher. Your love lifting me higher than I've ever been lifted before. Paul Pennington, a very warm welcome to Radio Glamorgan's Music Was My First Love. Hello, thank you for having me. Tell me about your first choice from Jackie Wilson. Um, that is just one of those feel-better tracks, and it always reminds me of my family and the fantastic love that they have and the support that they've given me no matter what crazy thing I've done in my life <laughs> and, and whenever I hear it it just lifts me up and I used it very recently over the last couple of years put on some comedy shows and before I went up to compare that was my opening track because it just lifts everybody yeah. up. you see people toe tapping and looking at each other smiles on their faces and of course love is so important the love for somebody in your life your child your family etc and you know we could all deal with a lot more love in our life we could do all the time um have you always been a music lover paul yeah i, I, I my dad was a singer my mum's a singer my my aunt is a singer my brother's a singer uh i have been known to warble a little bit in <laughs> and the like and uh, done a couple of musicals so yeah Music, uh, as, as, as the opening track, was my first love, and it will probably be my last. It, it's, it's in me, it's part of me, as I say. When, you're, when your dad's a, a nightclub singer, you're, you're surrounded with, by it from a very, very, very early stage in your life. We'll talk more about uh, your career as we go on, but let's go to your second choice. Tell me about White Rabbit from Jefferson Airplane. It's, it's about the 60s, really. I'm, I'm a 60s child, born in 1963, and it was just an extraordinary time for creativity, for movement, for discovery, and I was tempted to go for the Beatles' Strawberry Fields, because that, again, was one of those iconic tracks which sort of typified a change, but then there was this sort of white rabbit thing that kept coming back to me, come back to me. Jefferson Airplane, I think, were miles ahead of, of everybody else at the time, and this is a song that, that kind of haunts me, really, and, and I think that the vocal on it is just absolutely superb the range the, the notes uh, it, it's incredible so as, as a piece of art i love it for that one pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small and the ones that mother gives you me right back to being sick and, and starting to see who I was and what I was all about and all the things that were going on, all the psychedelic colours and things that were just incredible at the time. You know, there was so much progression, so many things happening. Mm. Uh, the news, the entertainment, everything, the phones, the Beatles, the, it was just a magic time. The first man on the moon, it was just incredible. And I was I was, I was brought up in Manchester uh, in, in, in a very sort of working-class family, etc., watching this kind of 
kind of made me think that's a sort of career creativity, doing something different, mm. different opening, you know, pushing the envelope. That's where I want to be. So White Rabbit, Strawberry Fields, that sort of psychedelic silence sort of showed me that there was possibilities of, of pushing further than, than where we were before. So that kind of inspired me, really. The whole Carnaby Street situation got me a love for London, which I've, I've had now for, for 30 years since I've been living here. And again, it started a lot of things in me, that, that particular track and that particular time. How did acting come your way? Um, I came my way really because of the family connection, really. Uh, as, a, as a child, my dad was a concert secretary at the local working men's club. And uh, they had a sort of every year they'd go out on one of these drives, you know, they get coaches together, crates of beer at the back and go out to Southport or North Wales or wherever it was from Manchester. And as part of the entertainment, my dad being the concert secretary, he tried to organize sort of talent shows with the kids. And, and it started off with me singing uh, Ernie, uh, the, the, the Milkman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Betty <laughs> and, and I learned that song and got up on stage and, and did it. But I think it was earlier than that. My first ever appearance on stage was as a shepherd. Uh, and I had to lead a goat onto stage in this tabard that my mum had made for me and all the way through the performance I'm singing my little heart out unaware that the goat is eating my tabard <laughs> um, <so> I, <laughs> and, and, and even though I was half naked that didn't put me off uh, <laughs> and, 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 and I was a short fat squat kid and acting and, and sort of you know you've heard it many times you know in chat shows people say you know it was a way I used to mimic the teachers yeah. the people girls liking me etc so it was it was something that, that made people want to know me want to like me because I was daft enough to get up on stage and make a fool of myself so you of because of the family connection you obviously um, had encouragement from them Absolutely oh, opposite. Okay. My dad and mum would much rather have gone into computers, anything, rather than the entertainment business, because it is so precarious. Mm. It's not, you know, there's only a very, very small percentage of people that get successful and make a career out of it. Most of the jobbing actors in the UK are lucky if they get a job once a year, and that's not because they're lack of talent, that's because of lack of opportunities. Yeah. And theatre is so badly paid. So, you know, they, they wanted the best as any parent does for their child, so they thought that really I should do something very different. And my mother was very, very keen on me being a writer because I'd not only done acting, I'd started writing plays. I was prolific. Writing <laughs> plays, directing things. I was, you know, before 15, kind yeah. of thing. And, and again, this whole thing of, of, of doing drama, I, it was a way of being able to communicate. I enjoyed it. I liked the attention that went with it. You've got to be honest with it. Uh, and as I say, I, because my parents didn't want me to do it, I was going to do it, if you see what I mean. Well, it's the same with every child, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you tell a child no, they go, yeah, really? Go yeah. on, then. So I'm very careful with my own daughter. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, that was the way I put my daughter off going into the theatre uh, around about ten years ago. Um, we really sort of got involved in making sort of shows and doing things on video, and, and she's very, very good. I have to tell you that the girls are natural. And she just didn't like hanging around. And I said, well, this is what it's all about. If you're going to be a, a, a TV actor or a presenter, you spend most of the day waiting for your bit. Oh, I can't deal with that. <laughs> so we made this pilot with her and showed it to the BBC. The BBC said, yeah, we love it. We'd love to take her on. So I said, Lil, um, we've got this series for you. She went, nah, I don't fancy it. It's not a proper career, is it? 
Right. Ah, <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, then. <laughs> a part of me was disappointed because yeah. it would have meant a lot of money. She'd have been able to put it into a trust fund for a university. Yeah. But the other part of me was like, <laughs> the double double bluff. Oh yeah, <laughs> worked perfectly. I, I have to say, and she's doing extremely well. Good uh, by her own uh, sort of fruition and what she's achieved, and, and I, I couldn't be prouder of her for that. But she is an exceptional presenter. I have to say it. I mentioned that you'd worked with uh, Kenneth Branagh, Rupert Everett, and Daniel Day Lewis, and also in a, a Colin Welland comedy. Must have been a great experience. Both oh, of those. Those three that you've just mentioned, gentlemen of the first degree. Um, when I came down to London to do Another Country, where I worked with all these three actors, couldn't have been more supportive, couldn't have been lovelier. I mean, I'm a fish out of water in London, in the middle of the West End, with all these very accomplished young actors with, who will go on to do, I don't know how many Oscars, Daniel Day-Lewis has won, um, but his toilet must be fairly full of Yeah, them. yeah, three or four, yeah. <laughs> nominated eight times. What a completely unassuming, yeah. nice, decent human being. Yeah, he shied away from the actors, would more rather go out and have a pint with the yeah. crew afterwards. Not that he was being snobby, it's just he couldn't be doing all that showbiz stuff. And he was in character for the show, and afterwards, like, like myself, you know, I, I don't really get involved in that sort of cliquey, social networky sort of, you know, drinkies with the people and sending yeah. people birthday cards when you don't know them and all that sort of stuff. Because it's just a job, as far as I'm concerned. I go, I do it, and I go home like a plumber does, like a builder does. I don't see it as being anything different than just being a job. So they were, they were incredible. Colin Welland, I have to say, he is an incredible... I mean, God bless him. He only died a couple of years yeah. ago from Alzheimer's. And I'm so sorry that he didn't get to see his full potential as a writer because his writing was just superb. A difficult man, it has to be said. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, again, Heart of Gold gave me my, my equity card, my opportunity to, to come to London and, and, and establish myself here and work with people like Windsor Davis, uh, you know, fine Welsh fella, yeah. who, 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 alongside my granddad, who was also very affiliate, affiliated with, 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 with Wales, really sort of brought home that whole thing of, of, of the country and my love for it, which I, I do. And the first ever television show I did was in Cardiff. Uh, with the BBC, Keep On Running, Port Seed Play, with uh, a couple of actors I grew up in the 1960s. So Cardiff, I'm, that's why I'm particularly honoured to be on, 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 the, on the radio with you today, from, from the heart of The heart of, yeah. a magnificent hospital as well. I mean, and, and if any staff listening, thank you so much for everything that you do. Really, really, really appreciate it. And, and I know you've gone through hell through COVID, and thank you for all that you did. That's lovely. Uh, now to your next choice uh, from Salford-based rock band Joy Division. Uh, tell us about the track you've chosen. I take it a fan of the band as much as the song? Um, yeah, both, really. Um, it was a time of my life, 13, 14, where I started to realise who I was as a young man, kind of things, and people that I was hanging out with through the theatre scene were following these guys and saying, this is incredible, the Manchester scene is really starting to lift up, and it, and it really was, and I... I thought what I loved about Ian Curtis was the fact that he was this very strange character uh, in one respect, in terms of his performance, but then very private. We've seen the film about him and his life, etc. Uh, and, and I got along to see them live when I was like 14 and a half. I was smuggled into a gig, and then we went and had a beer with them afterwards, even though I shouldn't have been thinking. 
um, it was it was an incredible time, and, and I just started writing and doing things, and, and, and to me, and, and a few years later, it's a track that stayed with me all the way through the life, my life, and when I first landed in London to do another country, as a Mancunian in London, on my own, outside of rehearsals, my landlord downstairs, who I didn't know, suddenly played this one day, I'm staying in this bed and breakfast, I know nobody, and I hear the first strains of this, and the smile that came on my face, and I rushed down the stairs, and I went, Joy Division! And he went, yeah, it's great, isn't it? And that started a friendship from that one song, which lasted five years, and one of my greatest friends. So it's all thanks to Joy Division. And that was my sort of introduction and, and starting to feel comfortable being a, an economic migrant, as it were, <laughs> in London. Paul, almost 25 years later, uh, you moved away from acting and into radio production and healthcare campaigning. Was there a particular reason for the involvement with the campaigning? Uh, yeah, um, earning money to support my daughter, uh, okay. essentially. Um, my girlfriend at the time announced that she was pregnant. Uh, we split up slightly, well, we, we split up very sh shortly afterwards, but have remained great friends ever since. And um, I had a choice, and, and that choice was, to be a father and, <laughs> and, and responsibility I, I held very very dearly and, and I had to get a job so public relations healthcare uh, was an area because I'm a kind of passionate guy and I, I believe in fighting on behalf of, of, of the underdog sort of thing and, and, and health appealed to me because there was so much that needed to be done from an awareness perspective and there was money there to do it from, from the PR companies from uh, pharmaceutical companies, etc. And the wonderful thing about healthcare was, was that although the pharmaceutical companies were spending money to raise awareness, we could only raise awareness. We couldn't promote drugs because there's an ethical framework mm. when it comes down to uh, broadcasting health on radio or, or on any sort of media, really. And, and you cannot be promotional. So it, to me, it was a great opportunity to get out there and start campaigning and get messages over to people to say, look, you know, are we, were you aware of this? And what about this? And what about that? And I, w I was a bit frustrated as well. And the reason why we started making word on health was all we'd ever hear on, on normal commercial radio, which is by far more popular than, say, the BBC, we'd hear about cancer, uh, which, of course, we do need to hear about. And, of course, we do need to hear about heart disease and we do need to hear about diabetes. But we weren't hearing about osteoporosis or fibromyalgia. We weren't listening to hearing about epilepsy. We weren't mm. hearing about Tourette's. We weren't hearing about pulmonary arterial hypertension. These were stories that deserved coverage, people that needed the support, and it wasn't getting onto commercial radio, certainly getting onto the BBC, but it's only a set amount of people that listen to the BBC. Commercial radio is far more popular, and it was a case of, well, how do we get uh, help onto radio, commercial radio, when they've only got two minutes at the top of the hour to do news, and once they've done the main headlines of the national news, and they've got the local, the local sport, so health falls right down the agenda, unless, of course, you've got a cure for cancer, a cure for heart disease, or a cure for diabetes, mm. then it will appear. And I was sending through stories, and, and, and the news editors were saying, look, you know, you've got all the right sort of credentials there, you've got some great spokespeople, is there any way that you could make that for us as a package, send it to us, 
and then maybe we can drop it into our music programming and that will help us because we've got a, an onus on producing speech as part of our sort of content as our license and and it might work out so we came up with this sort of three to five minute feature word on health interview based try and keep it snappy try and keep it accessible try and keep it as accessible to as many people as possible and we make it in three styles so we make it with an fm uh, sort of upbeat funky uh, music bed mm. an am grace jones libertango bass and a dry bass for a couple of news stations that takes us and it it's made as a as a standalone feature you can introduce it or you can just let it play as part of your ongoing programming kind of thing and it's and it works incredibly well. And then suddenly, you know, here we are 21 years later and over 750 charities, something like 2,500 different reports that we've done on different aspects of health, etc. And, uh, you know, we still carry on. And what's it's interesting, you touched on this earlier, that uh, about bringing to the forefront um, health issues that don't get headline news. Uh, and for example, um, a friend of mine suffers very badly with fibromyalgia. Now, I'd never heard of fibromyalgia, and most people will think, "Oh, why can't you get a job?" But these things that you're doing make people aware that these these illnesses exist. Invisible disabilities. There are so many people yeah. out there who look normal, whatever normal is these days, uh, but are living with you know life-threatening conditions, etc. And I I worked for a time in pulmonary arterial hypertension where, you know, it doesn't sound that bad, really. And we've come an incredible amount of, 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 of journey for, with pH because we now have drugs that allow people to live a lot longer than they used to. Mm. But it's a killer disease. It's rare as well, and that's the other thing. If you're living with a condition which is deemed as being rare and no one knows about it, as you say, you get that, oh, pull yourself together. Well, there's always people worse off than you, and you're living with something, you know, MS, ME fibromyalgia, you know, I, I could reel them off, uh, where people have got real suffering, but do brilliantly in terms of living with their condition. I think that's the key, is that if we can raise awareness and if we can help people to understand what other people are going through, then perhaps they can be a little bit more empathetic, a little bit more sympathetic, a bit more supportive towards one another. Mm. You know, again, it comes back to my first track, love. Um, appreciate, respect, get to know and be able to be there for people when they need you, you know? How did you uh, go about encouraging 32 airlines to stop taxing fit-to-fly disabled passengers for the use of medical in-flight oxygen? I worked with an incredible patient group called the PHA UK, uh, a dedicated bunch of, of clinicians, parents, people that are affected by the condition, who were fighting on behalf of their patient community of about 2,000. First of all, the government drug watchdog NICE wanted to take their drugs away from them, and they are expensive drugs, but there was a wonderful Carmarthenshire-based MP who said, hang on a minute, this is not right, and he led the charge in Parliament, his name escapes me, so forgive me, an incredible Czech gentleman who went forward and said, this is wrong, we stood behind him, worked with him, and then patients were saying to us, look, you know, when we fly... Uh, we get charged an awful lot of money for, for, for oxygen in flight. Could you do something about it? So we got the patients to do a uh, sort of secret shopper exercise with all the different airlines to highlight the difficulties that disabled passengers who require oxygen in flight but are otherwise fit to fly went through. 
and it caught the attention of Parliament, of the Welsh Assembly, of the Scottish Parliament, the Northern Ireland Assembly. They all got behind it. And suddenly, one by one, these airlines, one of the airlines, Emirates, was charging a thousand euros for oxygen. In Good grief. And they will substantiate that, and I'm not having a pop at them because they did, God bless them, they did say, no, we're not going to charge any more British Airways and God knows how many others who were charging between 100 and 125 pounds for the use of oxygen in flight just for a, a taxing on breathing. Really. Mm. But fair play to them. 32 of them got together and said, no, this, this is an unfair practice. We see the error of our ways. And, uh, and, 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 and as I say, respect to them for taking that on board. Because again, you know, when you're living with a disability and you're living with a condition, it's expensive enough as it is, right? Yeah, so yeah. If you want to get some respite and go on holiday, and you can, and I, I encourage anybody to travel when it's safe to do so, then the last thing that you want, just because you're disabled, is having to pay an extra amount of money because you're disabled, right? So you're being punished? Yeah, you know, what What for? I mean, as if, as if the illness isn't punishment enough, yeah. right? You know, for heaven's sake, give these people a fair chance. And and again, that's, that's something what I'm all about, you know. It's, uh, I... I, I I know I shouldn't sometimes, but uh, maybe I'm a bit too gobby than I should be. But, you know, again, if, if I see something is wrong, I'm not going to be one of those people that stands by and says nothing. I'm going to do something about it. As my daughter says about herself, if I didn't have a, an opinion, it wouldn't be me. I don't know where she gets that from. <laughs> <laughs> the, Paul, the, the, the healthcare work is obviously incredibly important to you, and I can hear the passion in your voice. Do you ever miss the acting, I wonder what might have been? not a case of what might, might, might have been. It might come again. Uh, I took some time off from it, and I should caveat by saying that Word on Health is something that I make freely. Mm -hmm. No pharmaceutical companies, there's no involvement. We make it as a free piece of editorial so that, you know, you know it's unbiased because there's so much fake news and uh, sponsors and influencers and God knows no, whatever else out there. We go for straight editorial. We never NHS bash because at the end of the day, the NHS is a brilliant organization i'm so grateful to them for what they've done for me and what they do on a day-by-day -day basis and it is hard given the fact that the hospitals and doctors are used like political footballs when yeah. all they want to do is do the job that they're trained for and should get paid better for doing it i told you i opinions are are my own uh, not necessarily the radio stations but i do believe that you know if you put so much time and dedication and and uh, empathy into what you do you deserve an awful lot better than you do Acting is, is one of the things that I'll probably go back to. What happened to me was I got anxious. Um, I, I lost my nerve on stage in 1991, suddenly being on stage and thinking, why am I doing this? What's it all about? Why is he talking to me in that way? And, and from that point, I, I retired from it and had to try and find something else to do with my time because I couldn't go back on stage. And, and then that's what got me into, I've done all sorts, you know, football commentating, then into sort of writing with News International, and then we were doing special project telephone stuff, and that led me by, 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 you know, by one thing after another into radio, and then into healthcare campaigning, and then out of that led me into aviation, and, you know, things have gone on. So I'm, I'm actually writing something at the moment, the first time in 30 years that I've actually written some drama, and um, I'm auditioning for a couple of things as an actor. So I've been invited, blessed that people remember me, <laughs> uh, and now being that much older, you know, when I started acting, I was 
knee high to a grasshopper mm. and always played young parts. Now I'm uh, 58. I am. Uh, I, I'm, I look that much older, and my voice now fits my face because when I was young, I looked very young and had this very deep voice. Mm. So, mm. The two have kind of caught up with each other now. <laughs> and, and as I say, I'm. I'm, in, I'm, I'm I can't say too much about this, no. but uh, I am. I am working on something, and uh, who knows? Watch this. Let's move straight uh, into your next choice, Paul. Um, an absolute classic uh, for your fourth choice. You've chosen Jay Rafferty's Baker Street. It's all that needs to be said, isn't it? Oh, what reminds me about this, sorry for the pause, you just took me on a journey back to when I was 17 on a coach coming down from Manchester to London overnight to go to drama school auditions. And as you sort of wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning... The bus is coming into London, the smoke's over the city, and on the radio comes this track. Winding your way down a Baker Street, lighting your head and dead on your feet, well, another crazy day. Drink the night away and forget about everything. I know it's a terrible cliche, Paul, but they really don't make songs like that anymore, do they? No, they don't. And Jerry Rafferty, what a talent. And yeah. that song, as I say, it, it, it seemed to be... I thought there was a, a, a magic button that when you went, went past Watford Gap, that national coaches played that. <laughs> into London. Because every time I got the overnight coach, it, it was there. And it just stuck with me as a track. And as you say, brilliant, brilliant. And, and I, I got to know a little bit more about Jerry Rafferty and the Humble Bums and the whole, whole association with Billy Connolly mm-hmm. and the like. Again, uh, if, if, you, if you can... Listen to Jerry Rafferty's back catalogue. It will really surprise you. Don't just listen to Baker Street. He is a phenomenal writer, phenomenal producer, and, uh, yeah, great talent. And someone else we lost way too young. Yeah, wait, way, 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 way too young. Addiction, right? Yeah. Uh, and to alcohol, unfortunately. But uh, what a talent and what a legacy you left behind us. Thank you, Jerry. Let's, uh, let's go straight to your next choice, Paul. Tell me about Yazoo featuring the wonderful vocals of Alison Moyer and uh, oh, only you. This, this song, I sing this song, this is my warm-up song. Um, I first heard it um, as a white label, funnily enough. I was sharing a flat with this guy, Jim, I spoke to earlier. His brother was a, a PR, public relations person for Polydor, and we went round to his house one night for dinner, and he said, I've got this new track, you've got to listen to this. I've been listening to it all day. And he said, it's this group called Yazoo. They're going to change everything. Listen to this, listen to this woman. And I went, go on then. And that was it. It was like, wow, her voice, her range, and Vince Clark's arrangement, etc. To me, it's, uh, it's one of those timeless classics that yeah. comes in and out of vogue. Uh, but to me, it'll always be a very, very special track. Sometimes when I think of her name, when it's only a game, and I need you. Online, on mobile, and on smart speaker, this is Radio Glamorgan. Now, that's very unusual, Paul. I don't know that. Ah, Joe 
Tony Mitchell. While things run fast, it's just amazing. It, she's in the same category as Jerry Rafferty. Yeah. Uh, as a poet, as a songstress, as a writer. I mean, people remember Big Yellow Taxi, but they don't know all the other songs that she's done. And I was introduced to her by, by friends uh, living in North London. They, they, they love her. love her up here. It's very much a Hampstead thing. And <laughs> they all love Joni Mitchell. Uh, and, of course, we all remember the, the, the Richard Curtis film with, with, with Joni Mitchell in, etc. Uh, but for me, as a writer, being exposed to her and, and getting to actually meet her at a Wembley Stadium of event uh, where she was singing was it's incredible. And what a, although an international superstar, very humble, very down to earth, very lovely, and as I say, uh, learning her music, getting to know about her as a person and, and what she stands for, uh, amazing, amazing. And we, we don't hear enough of her on, on British radio, and we really should. And we only... Uh, I'm glad you chose that track, because when we do hear her, uh, nothing wrong with the songs, but it's always the same ones. Yeah. Um, and, and there is so much to Joni Mitchell. Um, and it, 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 it's not the sort of cliché pre-menopausal women, hmm. you know, there is so much there for everybody. It, 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 really, please, find Joni Mitchell, listen to Joni Mitchell. She is exceptional. Now, let's go back to a word on health for a sec. How many media outlets take it now? Uh, we are blessed to be on 98 wow. stations across the UK. As I say, it's a labour of love. I support and make the feature and pay for my team in order to make it because I'm very exceptionally lucky to work in the world of corporate aviation, and I'm very conscious of the impact that corporate aviation has on the world. So what I do is whatever I earn from working for uh, the private aviation companies, I put a proportion of those profits for the community. So we make Word on Health for free. Well, that means that we can support healthcare charities. That means that we can provide it to community broadcasters who don't have the resources to be able to make these types of, of packages uh, and you know everybody benefits i hope and more to come with word on health yeah it was interesting actually hearing it on the break and, and hearing <laughs> about obesity and, and i have to say uh, i've listened to my own advice and taken it uh, because since christmas when i made that report um i have now lost 21 kilos wow yeah fantastic <laughs> i'm very proud of that uh, and it hasn't been arduous. It hasn't been hard. And I was listening to that going, yeah, Paul, you're absolutely right. <laughs> you know? And I haven't had to go and be one of the lycra-clad, not that you can get into a gym through lockdown, but, mm. you know, I've not had to go out and do stupid things to lose the weight. It's just being, following Jackie Laven's advice, being sensible, not starving myself, eating properly, a bit of exercise, and it drops off me. And the beautiful thing about that is, is that I was at 38 waist, which is, Sort of, you're on the borderline for diabetes. Yeah. I've, I've lost too many friends to diabetes and seen people lose their limbs and eyesight. And, you know, the, the insidious uh, effect that the disease has on people. That people don't realize the, the effect of diabetes. No. They think it's a touch of the sugars. And I've seen it. So I thought that's the last thing at 58. The last thing I want to do is go down that alley. So I went down the, the, the 21 pounds, kilos lost. I've got two kilos to go before I hit my target weight. What's Operation Flat Tummy, as I <laughs> What's that? And, and I'll be there. And in future, yeah, we want to... It's our 21st anniversary, so we're trying to do something different this year. We want to engage with people. You know, it's all very well going on radio saying 50% of people are aware of this and 20% aren't aware of that. Well, you know, six minutes later, you've forgotten about it. Yeah. 
So we need to find a way of being able to get people to take ownership without preaching, but finding ways and means to engage people in their own health without it sounding like you're, you're trying to nanny them or, or get them to do something that they haven't. My inspiration in that is Michelle Obama uh, and the way that she in, in the United States has taken healthcare and, and messaging in a different direction. And they're very, very clever, the Obamas, in the way that they communicate. I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by her by thinking, look, awareness campaigns don't work anymore. We need to find ways of encouraging people positively to make change without making them feel that, that you're demonizing a condition, making them feel that they've done something wrong. I mean, it's hard enough living life as it is without having someone pointing a finger at you saying, you should do this, you should do that, yeah. you should do this, that, and the other. We have to find ways of people are intelligent in this country. They can find things for themselves. If you can help them, if you can shepherd them in that, in that direction as a leader, then great. Let them find it for themselves, because if they do, that is going to be a far greater change in future because what they're going to be is a legacy of passing that information on that experience onto those people around them and hopefully then we can get some change. For your next choice, Paul, uh, you could have chosen one of over 100 Paul McCartney tracks, but you've, I, I love this track, but you've gone for a, a, a rather forgotten one. Any particular reason for Tuck of War? Um, it's the whole album for me. Mm. Um, I could have chosen any one of those tracks. I think this is probably one of Paul McCartney's best albums um, as, as a solo artist. And again, it was about that time when I was starting to get exposed to Wild Things Run Fast. I've always been a Beatles nut. I can, I've sung Beatles tracks, you know, part of this covers band and all that sort mm. of stuff. Live and die it. But, and I, I kind of thought that Paul McCartney was, 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 was kind of this sort of gauche, over-the-top, arrogant kind of person. And, and then I met him. And, and I realized he's not like that at all. He's a really, really nice guy. We used to live just around the corner from each other in, in St. John's Wood. And we'd compete to get the Guardian first thing in the morning. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I had to get up early before McCartney got bloody <sighs> news agents so I could get a Guardian. Uh, and not that I'm a great Guardian reader, I was, I was in the West End, and one of the things that I did every day was read all the papers. Because yeah. You do the show at night, but you've got all the day to yourself. Yeah. So I had to fill up the time. I mean, I, you know, alongside decorating and the garden and whatever. So I'd read the papers every morning, and as I say, I used to go down first thing just to beat McCartney to get to the Guardian. And, and a friend of mine said, you know, I was telling the story about, you know, always trying to beat Paul McCartney. He said, have you heard his latest album? And I said, no, what's that? He went, tug of war, it's sensational. And you know what? It is. It's a tug of war What with one thing and another It's a tug of war That'll be the title of your autobiography, I Raced McCartney to Get the Guardian. And when I was when I was putting this show together, and I haven't heard that song for a long time, it is a great song. It is a great album. Um, that little orchestral bit at the end, isn't it superb? But he used it again, isn't it? Similar to Pipes of Peace to the end yes, of that. It is. Yeah, it is. I, I what think... I like about that ending is the lead into the next track. The next track is fantastic, and I would have chosen that as well. You know, in fact, I'd have chosen the entire album. Yeah, but yeah, he he did use it and. Uh, I mean, anyone that can play that amount of, of, of instruments and put that orchestration together. And you know, he's also saying a message, I think, about his relationship with John. Uh, and, and, of course, the Beatles. I grew up with the Beatles. So that, that whole sort of, you know, breakdown of the Beatles, the relationship between them, etc., fascinated me. Uh, and as I say, you know, 
uh, there you are at, at 1920 and you're competing with Paul McCartney. Yeah. You know, listening to all this and, and reflecting back, I, I'm just so blessed, really. You mm. know, to have had such a great life. I mean, you know, I, I'm not a millionaire or whatever. I just live in North London. I do this little health thing. But, you know, thinking back, I've, I've had extraordinary opportunities. I'm so blessed. And just one last thing on that album. Um, that's an interesting comment about, you know, tug of war being possibly about his relationship with John. I think off the top of my head, isn't that the album that had um, if uh, if you were here today on it? Yeah, so it was all very much on his mind, wasn't it? Really, yeah. Again, there's a lot that I'm really excited to see this new film that's coming out this year from Peter Jackson yeah. uh, on the Beatles, and I've seen recently <clears> some <throat> of the rushes on that, and it looks absolutely spectacular. They have got access to you know thousands of hours of, of unseen clips and putting it together. Uh, you know, it looks extraordinary, but I think that. There was a lot that went on afterwards and around that time that we're just not familiar with. But no. Yeah, I think that, that the album was him coming to terms with the relationship. And, you know, they were, John Lennon described Paul McCartney as his best friend. So, yeah. you know, uh, whilst the Beatles and being a Beatle, you know, the whole thing about help, I've recently been learning about, you know, that, that you know, John Lennon saying at the time, that was my expression of, of saying, I can't cope with this anymore. Mm. And going back to the 1960s and thinking about what they must have been living with, you know, tens and tens of thousands of people turning up at airports and following their every move. I mean, how do you live like that? No, you, know? I mean, you, you can't. Really. But so uh, for me, as you say, you know, I think that album was a turning point and, and a way of them being able, him being able to say, look, this is where it is, this is what it's all about. And yeah, I miss you. They were best mates, for heaven's sake, you know, and I was interesting reading a a, a newspaper column recently, Paul now talks to John when he's writing songs, um, because he's he's got him in his head. Yeah, well I don't know if you've ever listened to, and it is available on CD actually, the John Lennon interview uh, with Andy Peebles just before he died, Um, and he says on that that their their rivalry was, was not... A nasty one. It was. It started as kids in school. Yeah. You know when they first met, and and kids are competitive with each other. And and, and that competitive nature drives you on. Mm. You know, I, I I write. I always think of I, when I write. I'm always writing with somebody in mind, and it can always be better. That's why I enjoy writing with people, so that we share ideas. But someone can turn around to me and say that's wrong, or no, it doesn't work. You need to go it that way or this way. And I, and I love that creative process. And I think the pair of them had that, and that's what I was reading in this newspaper, is that they could point things out to each other, and they, they, you know, they'd take that criticism on board, change things, and, and, and look what the legacy mm. Paul Pennington is my guest on this edition of Music Was My First Love. Can we talk a little bit about your work as a media trainer and communication coach? Yes, of course we can. Uh, how did you get involved with that? Um, it got in, I got involved with it, basically. It came out of the healthcare side of things. You know, we have, we have people that come into studio to do down-the-line interviews, and that's basically plugging somebody in from a central London studio into different studios up and down the country. And you get the illusion that the person in London and the person in Manchester or Cardiff are in the same studio together. And, and it's a way of us being able to campaign, but it's... It, fairly nerve-wracking going on radio, hmm. fairly nerve-wracking being a case study or talking about something that's very close to you when the microphone fader opens kind of thing. And I was asked because of my background in acting and directing to be able to assist people with their 
presentation style, with the, the way that they deliver things, their messaging, etc. And, and that kind of opened up. So I, I was training people before they would go onto, say, The One Show or onto BBC Radio 2 or doing down-the-line interviews with various broadcasters across the country. And it was just sort of enabling and helping people and supporting people and guiding them as to the best way of being able to present their story on radio, TV, in newspaper, in the best possible way. Hmm. And it grew out of helping a bunch of people for a patient support group, and I did it for nothing, and then someone said, well, we wouldn't mind paying you for that. And then out of the blue, I get this phone call from a guy from a company called Bombardier. And I thought they were a gin manufacturer. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. Oh, uh, beer, that's the other one, Bombardier, Bombardier beer. Yeah, yeah. So, ooh, free samples. And he says to me, I, I hear that you've trained somebody for the Today program, which is, you know, the bastion of news programming, BBC Radio 4. And, uh, you know, you, you've got uh, this person off the hook with John Humphreys. And I said, well, about off the hook, but I certainly worked him before he went in, so it's rehearsing, going through things, making sure that they say the right things, they pivot when asked certain questions, etc. And he said, look, I'm going for this interview, and I'm rubbish at interviews. Do you think you might be able to help me? So I said, yeah, okay, well, what is it? He said, well, we produce um, Bombardier aircraft. I said, what are those? He said, well, they're Learjets, they're Challengers, and they're Globals, and uh, their, their average ticket price is 50 million. I went, is it? Yeah, we'd better come over then. I thought, I don't know if I can help you, but I'll have a go. So I did, and he got the job, and then I said to him, well, you know, doing this whole sort of putting people through a role-play scenario on camera, on microphone, might be really useful to your salespeople. So he went, go on then, we'll have a go. The next thing you know, I'm whizzing around the world, Dubai, Hong Kong, Australia, and, you know, we're helping the sales force um, using the techniques of putting people on radio or on TV, to show them how they could, you know, present better. And it took off, forgive the pun, and <laughs> the, the sales went through the, through the roof, and, and we did really well out of it as well, so it was fantastic, and gave me the opportunity to fly all over the world, which, you know, when somebody else is paying for it, and they're yeah. you up in the hotel, I mean, you're working hard for it, but I never thought, little lad from Manchester, you know, used to wait with his mum on a, on a Friday night for his dad to come home so we could eat that weekend, uh, suddenly find yourself in Dubai or Hong Kong out of a bit of media trainer. It was, it was bonkers, but mm. brilliant. Your uh, eighth choice uh, is more of a... In fact, the next two tracks are uh, more up-to-date bands, really. Uh, but next up, Duran Duran. Tell us about Ordinary World. Ordinary World, those lyrics mean so much to me because, as I said earlier, there was a time in my life where I had to give up acting because my nerves had gone... Uh, I was anxious all the time. I couldn't even think about going on stage without being seriously ill. And it was that realization that I'm going to have to try and do something ordinary. I'd been extraordinary in terms of working that bubble of the entertainment field, the West End, the TV, the radio, etc. And here I am on a journey to the ordinary world. And just the lyrics in this song mean so much to me. And it just typifies a time in my life. And it's a very, very special song for me. What is Maltese Funny Business, Paul? What is Maltese Funny Business? Maltese Funny Business is Malta's premier stand-up comedy uh, <laughs> set-up 
uh, organized by me a couple of years ago. Um, the, the story behind it is um, that I've, I've written comedy years and years and years and years and years and years ago. Um, looking at the time for a present for my then assistant for her 21st birthday, wanted to do something different, saw this stand-up comedy course and thought, I'll sign her up for that. Said to my daughter, this would be good for you, go and do a stand-up <laughs> comedy course. Only showed her the first page. The second page meant that she had to stand up on stage. When she saw the second stage, she said to me, I'm not doing that, Dad. All words to that. <laughs> <laughs> Cleaning it up for radio. And uh, <laughs> so I had to do it with my assistant. And I met this incredible character called Jay Sodigar, who was the course uh, leader and tutor over two days. And um, went through a journey with him. Found him extremely brilliant. We became friends. And then over years, kept in touch, developed some comedy ideas. We, we put a, 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 a show together called uh, uh, Britain's Got Satire, which included Asif Nawaz, Dave Chawner, myself, writing together as a team. And then an opportunity came up to work in Malta um, in corporate aviation for a company I can't mention. Um, hmm. but very proudly, and they're, they're a brilliant organization, but you sign these confidentiality things right. so you can't sort of uh -huh. know who they are. So I was out there, and, and Malta's a great country-ish, um, <laughs> for a weekend. Um, <laughs> please don't write in, honestly, seriously. It's a personal view. It's not a view of the hospital, the NHS. It's a great country. It really is fantastic. And it was just a little bit short of, of, of entertainment, really. So um, I set up this idea of stand-up comedy and said to my friend Jay, would you come over and train a few people? So we would sort of trying to train local comics and then bring a, a UK artist over and we put on 40 shows over two and a half years which was great fun I, it was just a again as a, as, a, as a form of having something to do in the evening mm -hmm. outside of going to a restaurant or sitting on a rock watching the sea come in and out there's not much else to do in no. the really I mean you know the pavement uh, I mean, there's all sorts of stories that I could tell, I can go into my stand-up routine about Malta, um, but I'm not going to. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it was good fun, and we brought some friends over, we had some great nights, and uh, I'm looking forward to going back there when, uh, when we're allowed to, and uh, we'll, we'll pick up again, and uh, we've been invited out to do some more shows, uh, and uh, we'll look forward to doing that. A real mixed bag among your ten choices, Paul, and none more so than the last two. Uh, tell us about your ninth choice, and why this particular Guns N' Roses track? My daughter. The most important and most brilliant thing that's ever happened in my life was purely by accident, but the best accident ever. And that is my 23-year-old daughter, Lily, who um, I'm going to get all very teary here because uh, she is the number one inspiration in my life. Uh, she's just a brilliant person. And, and again, you know, I'm bound to say that because I'm a dad and I'm biased and everything. But what she stands for, who she is as a human being, which is all down to her, She's gone through a difficult childhood. I wasn't with her mum. She lost her grandmother at a very early age. And she's just risen at every stage. You know, she's always exceeded expectations in everything that she's done. And she's such a beautiful, self-effacing, although opinionated, lovely individual. And when I hear this song, I always think a little. But 
the sophistication for your final choice, Paul, and not the first time this has turned up in this series. Sarah Brightman and Andre Bucelli with Every Time We Say Goodbye. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of South Africa. I was very lucky to be invited to work in Johannesburg and staying in this uh, boutique hotel, which was surrounded by walls, wonderful Italian restaurant, and every night we had dinner... Up came Sarah Brightman and Andrea Bocelli singing this incredible track. And it just reminds me of the, of the beauty and the warmth of Africans. And we had such an amazing time, me and my team, down there. One of the most outstanding moments of that was actually being kissed by an elephant. Oh, lovely. But has she written? Has she written? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was incredible to get to see it firsthand, you know, the, the, the nature and the beauty of South Africa. Yeah. We're aware of the difficulties that they have. But we forget about the heart, the spirit, the beauty of the country. And to me, uh, although this is Bocelli and Brightman, it always reminds me of a very special time and a very special country. And that elephant. And that elephant. Um, in between everything else uh, you're involved with, Paul, as you mentioned earlier, you're in the process of writing a TV drama. You, you can't tell us anything about it, but any idea, timescale, of when we might see it? Well, I was commissioned last year. I've written the first half of it. I'm working on the second half of it. We're hoping that uh, it will be in production in probably two years' time. So it's, it's these things, when you're writing many episodes, it takes an awful lot of time. Mm. You've got the logistics of, of the filming, because it's filming, uh, I can't say where, but it, it's no. not in mainland uh, England kind of thing. So there's all that and the funding you have to get and everything. I mean, we've, we've got a small grant to start it with, um, and it, it, we, we will see. I think we're probably about two years away from production, but it's uh, an, an awful lot of hard work before we get <laughs> there, rewrite and rewriting and rewriting. But it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's looking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged. It's, it, it's something that I'm enjoying doing. And uh, I, I've got friend, writer friends of mine who, you know, I, I've got lots of admiration for them. They go in at 9 o'clock in the morning, they sit there, and they work till five. I can't work like that. I don't work like that. So my inspiration comes at daft times of the night and day, and I find myself suddenly writing 20 pages. Hmm. I need to be more disciplined. Note to self. You must be really proud of the Word on Health series and what it's managed to achieve over two decades. I'm really proud of all the community broadcasters and the hospital broadcasters and people like yourself, Andrew, who give up their time to be able to entertain and inform people. I just contribute a couple of minutes. You guys do the legwork and you give up your time, time in, time out. You know, and that's what inspires me to do Word on Health. As long as you guys want me to make this stuff, I will make it because I stand shoulder to shoulder with every person that volunteers their time to try and do something good for the heart of their, for the for, for their community, for the hospital audience, etc. Again, as I say, I think you guys are amazing, and whatever I can do to help you, I surely will. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Time to say You've been listening to Music Was My First Love on Radio Glamorgan, where health campaigner Paul Pennington has been choosing ten of his favourite songs. I'm Andrew Wolfe, and join me again soon when I'll be joined by another guest who chooses ten of their favourite tracks on another edition of Music Was My First Love. Music